Now you go, 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 oh, oh, I go, no, you go, oh, I go, no, you go, this is so embarrassing, I can't believe it, now you go. I was going somewhere and now I'm lost. Welcome to now you go, you look pretty. Thanks. But it's not like video, right? <laughs> so it well, doesn't matter. No, yeah. it's not video. Cool. Un unfortunately, the world doesn't get to see this mug. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I have cookies in the oven, so I can't forget. <laughs> that you can't forget. <laughs> wow. Well, cool. do we need to remind it you? It goes like cookies and then all of us. <laughs> yeah. That's fair. <laughs> there, Allison has burnt eight of my cookies so I really have to stay on top of it's fine that she burnt it was an accident eight cookies? that doesn't sound like an accident to me <laughs> well I had set the burner to broil the oven temp so, so you're broiling cookies <laughs> no I was I was like broiling cauliflower I've been eating a lot of vegetables since residing at Allison's residence <laughs> <laughs> yeah I can see that I'm like probably adding like 10 years to my life. <laughs> Brittany is, brings us together this afternoon. Yeah. And Brittany, we trust. <laughs> okay, so um, Rachel, since you are the most knowledgeable on the topic of Miss Spears, <laughs> would you please um, describe your relationship to Brittany Spears as an adolescent, an adult, and now middle-aged adult. <laughs> okay, so 33 is middle-aged, cool. Yeah. Um, okay. <laughs> uh, I loved Brittany as a preteen. Like I remember very distinctly when she came out and it's, it was a very preteen love. Like, you know, it, you're just getting into pop culture and like learning things beyond what your parents loved musically and all of that stuff. So. Um, yeah, I just loved her. She was my first concert, uh, the Oops, I Did It Again concert. Um, and what I loved about her, which is something that in my adult life, uh, I talked about extensively because my friend and I created a little Britney Spears and feminism workshop in New York. And we talked about this a lot, but I think what differentiated Britney was that she really understood the medium of her day, uh, like this was music video era, MTV, TRL. And so one thing I like to ask people, whether or not they're a Britney fan, and I'm always genuinely curious, is why do you think Britney was so successful compared with other blonde teen pop stars who came out at the time, like Jessica Simpson, Christina Aguilera, Mandy Moore. There are a lot of like, you could call cookie cutter almost images that were put out. And what I one thing I think really differentiated Britney was her ownership over her image. So when you think of Baby One More Time, her first single, you don't just think of that song, which is a great pop song, but you also think of the schoolgirl outfit, right? You don't just think of Oops, I Did It Again. You think of this Titanic, you think of this red leather jumpsuit, you think of moving on, uh, her MTV performance with the snake. So there are all these iconic images that she was putting out. Um, so she really understood her medium. And I think that's one reason I loved her so much as there she was, giving us so much creatively and performance wise. And I think all of that came as I was an adult. I didn't know it at the time that why I loved it. It was just like, I love this music. I love these images. Um, 
and I've come to appreciate over time, like as an adult and now a middle-aged adult, apparently. <laughs> um, well, a lot of what that documentary talks about, that uh, Framing Britney Spears, which just came out, but, um, you know, she went from being this America's kind of sweetheart pop princess, uh, this very like saccharine image to rebelling against that. And so that she's reached a whole different audience uh, because of her journey from going from this like super polished to showing the cracks and kind of holding up a mirror to society and being like this thing that was all polished isn't that polished. It's actually deeply misogynistic. It's actually really problematic. Um, and unfortunately that's come at an incredibly high cost to her own life. That was a long answer, but I could go on for days. Uh, but that's um, my relationship to her is that I, I've always admired her and I think she's given us so, so much and more than any person really should have to. She was like, to me, the first time, because I remember when Baby One More Time came out, I think I was in like fifth grade and that song was everywhere. And it was like the first time that I had seen like, Cause I know like in the eighties you had like Madonna and kind of like Cindy Lauper and all these other artists. But for my generation, it was the first time I had seen like a pop star that that was a woman and was like in the front of every magazine, every in front of every newspaper, all the charts was all Britney MTV, same thing, all Britney. And then even back then I like started to see all the other like pop stars who they were trying to emulate that same formula, like Christina, like how you mentioned all these other artists. But I, I distinctly remember even that time knowing she was the first to really do this thing. And it was like this such a groundbreaking uh, uh, thing to happen in our lifetime. And then like, it was weird because as a boy, you're just like not, you're, you're taught to like, that's like, oh, girly pop music or whatever. But I grew up with sisters and like, we they would watch MTV. So I would listen to the things that they would watch. And I was just like, yo, this shit is good. Like, oh, it's so <laughs> catchy. It's so good. Like this music is fucking great. And, but, and so... I like didn't realize the the effect that like all that stuff was having you just you, you don't know at the time you're not really paying attention to it but seeing the documentary and the way that they charted it from like how she started to how everyone became like obsessed with her life and like paparazzi hounding her like the crazy crazy disgusting ways that paparazzi would like follow her and hound her and like I can't I, I just can't even imagine like that life being thrust upon anybody and the the fact that like she was so vilified the way that she was, I like seeing it now as an adult, as a middle-aged adult Karen, is <laughs> like, it's, it's such a great, it's such a different lens to see. And I'm like, wow, I really feel like terrible for the things that she has to go through. Yeah, I feel like um, Britney Spears, I had, I never really paid attention to her that much. I didn't even really think she was that hot because at the time I was really into like twisted artsy people. So I was like, basic bitch, whatever. However, I, I did take note that she was a very good dancer. And I did take note that Christina Aguilera had a better voice, but it like didn't matter. Britney was like the one to pay attention to, which I mean, Christina had her day in the spotlight as well. And she, but she hasn't had the same impact on culture as Britney Spears. And I didn't really get interested in Britney Spears until um, she shaved her head. And it gave me a new respect for her because I felt like 
she embodied the stereotype of the hot white girl, which a lot of white girls have flirted with the idea as an adolescent, like being the American wet dream. And it's kind of, you know, even if you're not famous, it's a lot to handle. So for her to be like the sex object of the country, it should make her go insane. And I felt like, oh, she's like a really present person who's paying attention to what's being done to her. And the fact that she shaved her head and went crazy is like par for the course. So I felt like connected to her once she went crazy because I'm crazy myself. Well, and a, she- lot of, a lot of Britney fans are, are like that. They're, they weren't into her in the early days, the pop, the very pop days. And it was when she started to very publicly, there were cracks in that when she shaved her head, a bunch of people were, became fans at that point. But the, the dominant media story was not like, wow, look at this woman rejecting all these ideals we put on her. You know, the dominant narrative was, as you see in that documentary, like to make fun of her, to be like, Pep, she doesn't like that they were making fun of Britney. Uh, to, you know, that, that it was a joke, that she was crazy, she became a punchline, that she's a bad mom. Um, and also like the context, the context of that time, um, celebrities didn't have the same ability to communicate as they do today, right? There wasn't Twitter, there wasn't Instagram. She couldn't speak directly to people to, and let people know what was going on. There's this, um, this album that, called Original Doll that she never released that she was writing before her breakdown. And she had to sneak out in the middle of the night. It's the only time this was played. And she went to, she snuck out uh, in the middle of the night at like 2 a.m., went to a radio station and handed the DJ a CD and was like, I'm working on this music. Will you play it? I have a new album coming out. Her al- her label like denied it. They were like, we're not sure what it is yet. Yes, she's been working. Um, and they played this one song and then they put the kibosh on the whole album. And so this is like, Britney super fan lore everyone's like what was that album because and a lot of songs have released from it but a lot of it the lyrical content is about a woman falling from grace someone trying to break free um having control over their life and autonomy so anyway it's just it's like if that had happened today she could have put that on soundcloud or spotify with like the push of a button she, it was a totally different time where she couldn't, she had such little control and ability to respond to the narrative that was being put out there. Yeah, it's really interesting. I had never heard about, about that album. Yeah, if you wanna go down a Google rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah, I, I just look up Britney Spears' original doll and there's tons of stuff. I love that. <laughs> Be right back, cookies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <It's> broiled cookies. <laughs> I, I feel like I almost wish that what had happened to her when she shaved her head and all that stuff had happened like now because I feel like it would be it would have been received so differently because I feel like there's just so much more uh, discussion now about like mental health and kind of the real repercussions of like untreated mental health and how people who are put in the spotlight like celebrities and singers and actors and whoever who like experience these very public you know breakdowns and how they're perceived it would be so different than it was in like 2008 or whatever when that happened where everyone was calling her crazy and like 
you know, like I remember my mom talking about it. My mom like doesn't pay attention to any of that shit, but she was like, did you see what happened to Britney? She shaved her head, she went crazy. I was like, what? And it was just like, it was weird to just like, nobody knows the context of why she did what she did. Like you can kind of infer because, you know, if you were paying attention to what's going on around then and how she was being treated, yeah, of course. But nobody really knew what she was going through internally and in her mind, like how she was dealing with all these things in the public eye and nobody was letting her, you know, kind of, or even just like her, you know, we don't know if she suffers from any kind of, you know, mental ailment that is, is either has been diagnosed privately or whatever. And that could very well be the case because it's so commonplace for that stuff. So for people to suffer from those kinds of things. And like, I feel like now, if it would have happened now, it, it kind of maybe would have been seen differently. And she maybe wouldn't have had to have had like the whole conservatorship even happened because, you know, maybe there would have been a, a more of an open dialogue on what she was going through. And she maybe would have had the, the like, you know, social media and all these ways to like tell, to talk about what she's going through. Yeah. Well, I, th I think that one, the way the media treated her, like the conversation has changed so much about feminism has changed so much since 2000, you know, the late nineties, early two thousands that, the things that she got asked in interviews would never be allowed to happen today without incredible backlash. Uh, but that was yeah. her life. That was the norm. And and we do know that, um, at, at least according to the courts, like we do know that for her to be in the conservatorship of a doctor, the court's judgment based on doctor recommendation is that there is some kind of illness to be in a conservatorship, um, which is most likely a mental illness but there's just rumors as to what that is you know there's like people have all these theories or all these leaks and whatever but we really don't know what that mental illness is um but you know we do know that likely something there there is a mental illness and we do know from what she's what has been released in court documents that she doesn't want it to be a secret. You know, she does. Mm -hmm. She doesn't think it's this deep, shameful thing. She said that Jamie, her father, um, she she doesn't want it to be treated like some deep family shameful secret. So there there are hints that like she doesn't want to keep this under wraps necessarily, but is being forced to because she really doesn't have control over her life like she doesn't have the civil liberties because of the conservatorship so anyway. yeah I <laughs> one it was really interesting to to re-watch you know that that period of time and like I was in you know I was in college in 2008 and I was in a place of like like coming face to face with like mental health issues for the first time and like really struggling with like uh like a willingness to like seek out help or like admit that I needed help um and it it was really enlightening to like remember how much stigma there was around mental health at that time because I kind of forgot mm -hmm. that it was as bad as it was yeah this isn't like ancient history you know it's really really recent which yeah. is wild how much conversations around mental health have changed around the way we expect journalists to treat people and not be so blatantly sexist maybe it's a little bit more mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> under the radar even if it's still there um what i thought was really disturbing i don't know his name but that famous guy 
with glasses and white hair, and he asked Brittany if she wanted a boyfriend when she was like five. And oh, he was a star yeah. search guy. And he's like, well, what about me? Yeah, I thought that was creepy as hell too. Yeah. Maybe yeah. well, One More Time came out when she was 16. She recorded it when she was 16. So the kinds of questions she was getting, the, um, the immediate fascination on her virginity, her sexuality, it started like creepily uh, immediately, you know, she was yeah. very young <laughs> mm-hmm. and um, it's re- it's disturbing to watch. Like that guy who was interviewing her and asked her like about her boobs or something like yeah, that? Yeah, she's that 19. He's like a middle-aged, older yeah. than 33 um, man. Yeah. <laughs> she would have been creepy. <laughs> An elderly man. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's so disturbing to watch, you know, and it's amazing to see how like gracefully she answers those questions um, as a 19-year-old being put in that position. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it's it's impossible to like put yourself in those shoes, you know? Yeah. I don't, yeah. I don't to describe it in the doc, like they were just like, no male pop star artist would ever have to deal with anything like that. Like never, then nobody would ever do that to a male pop star or a male uh, person of that stature of that celebrity. And it's just like, you just see how, you know, like our patriarchal society just permeates through literally every facet of our society. Every single thing is just like put through that lens and every decision is made through the lens of like a, a man pretty much, especially at that time, Hopefully things are changing now, but at that time, it's just like everything was so over-sexualized about her. And it's it's like, it puts into perspective, like you, I think about like every other moment when I would see like an artist or, you know, I'm watching MTV or like BT or something. And I'm like looking at music videos and I'm just seeing like every time where there's like this over-sexualization of a woman. And I'm just like, fuck, that was like almost everything that I consumed as a, as a child. It was like, it was put in that lens. And now I'm just like, Jesus, like what, what did that do to me? What did that do to every other like man growing up, seeing that and being like shown that and thinking that like, this is the way that um, women in these positions should be treated or treated in general. And it's just like, you're just like, fuck, we're so fucked in so many ways. Yeah. And it affects everyone. I mean, yeah. The way men view women, the way women view themselves. Yeah. Um, but I would say that it's worse today because um, one could talk about how sexualizing these celebrities was at least a way to like attach femininity and success to sexuality. But now people consume so much porn. Young people watch so much more porn. And I think that could be, like, even though we were sexualizing our icons and the women in ways that are degrading, I think that's still healthier than basing how to treat a woman off of porn. And it makes me think that um, I'm always worried about how guys sometimes treat different types of women differently. Like some guys say like, oh, she's the the type of girl you bring home to your mom is like something guys talk about versus girls you just fuck. And Britney was kind of like a both, at, at the time she was kind of like a both um, person. So now I think that we have more um, separation between girls you'd fuck and marry versus girls you just fuck. And um, 
it's it's uh pretty bad i don't like how guys get so much pussy and girls when they try to get like dick you have to be like very empowered and very like quote unquote samantha about like being a female promiscuous being yeah oh, the sex in the city reference <laughs> um yeah it's a very pop culture themed talk but I think that I don't know if it's worse I think the issue of porn being everywhere uh and so readily consumable at a younger age is is an issue for sure um but I I do think that there are more more there's more of a spotlight on like we need women to tell their stories there's more of a spotlight on in music and movies there's a little bit more room at least it's more in the discussion now so yeah there it's it's sort of like whack-a-mole it's like okay we like put the kibosh on some of this like now you can't say that shit but like this other issue emerged with technology and you know issues with porn are now like in entering a whole new sphere and so I think that's true um but I don't I don't think that I don't know if it's worse today. I just, I don't think we've solved any of the issues. So they're just appearing in different ways. Um, but I think, I, I do think that just the fact that we're having these conversations is good. You know, just the fact that like mental health is being talked about, just the fact that they made this Britney documentary and people watched it and responded to it, that wouldn't have happened like when it was happening. You know, it, it didn't happen when it was happening. So it's one marker of a good sign I guess yeah 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 I, <laughs> I would be interested to find out like Dolly Parton and like Barbara Streisand's comments on Britney because Britney had such star power and that's when you can like manipulate other people into think like the judges or lawyers for example into thinking Britney isn't mentally competent to run her own life. That's, um, it's it's like it, it happened to be the right circumstances for her dad to like snake in there and take control of her finances. She was such a powerful woman and had such a, she has such an earning potential. She makes so much money. And the fact that a guy's in charge of that, um, it really feels like effort and engineering went in to getting control off of her. She's the product and it took a lot of energy to get her separated from like what she deserves. Yeah. And I, I was wondering when she was in Las Vegas and she was going to announce her second residency and she just kept walking. Is that because she's like on strike? It wasn't positioned that way, um, but it was a surprise, right? They'd been hyped. I remember this. They were like hyping it so much on social media. Big announcement, big announcement. Um, there was this whole like watch for an hour before the live thing. And then it was like, she just got up there and, and walked away. And so I think very suddenly it was like, she made the announcement almost right after that, that this whole thing was canceled. Um, and the the line was that, well, I, I don't know, the story at least that was put forward is that her father was having health issues. And so she was taking time to focus on family. That's what she posted, that was the story, but it was very sudden to everyone who was involved in it. Um, 
I think if her dad was getting sick, she wanted to be like, all right, let me do this while he's sick and try to get the fuck out. <laughs> yeah. Well, my friend Suri, who's the one that I um, taught that Brittany and feminism class. Suri, with. why didn't we get Suri on that? Wow, <laughs> she, um, she had this really excellent point that was like, it's very sad. But when you think about her father, who everything we know about him um, is that he he's not known for having the best reputation the best control of his own life and so someone who's not known for having great executive functioning over his own life simply because he's her father was able to take control over the life of one of the most powerful women in the world and that's really disturbing um and it it sort of just feels like we're all with the system in some ways like you're we could all kind of be teetering on the edge of like losing control over our own lives in some ways and that a system can turn against you and that women in particular are labeled crazy quite easily and can be twisted into that narrative if someone wants to um, pretty easily and people will accept that and put control in the hands of a man, pretty much any man, <laughs> it seems like. So, um, but yeah. it's, it seemed like, he obviously had help if he wasn't um, able to take care of his own life. It probably yeah. took a team to like- That other guy that was part of the, when he's like latched onto multiple people and- like, Yeah, there's on. there's a whole, anytime you're dealing with this much money, like I think they say this in the doc, you just, you have to question everyone's motives. And he had, he immediately got a legal team together. When she was in the hospital, um, they filed the first petition for the conservatorship. So she wasn't even able to respond. Like she didn't even know what was happening, which is pretty abhorrent. Um, but yeah, yeah, he didn't just draft up papers by himself. He had a legal team. He had, there are a lot of people, not just him who profit off of her position. Yeah. And she pays for that, you know? Yeah. That is the most disturbed. Like there's a lot of talk about this whole setup being a conflict of interest because she has to pay for both sets of lawyers like the people who are for her and against her uh crazy. yeah it's 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 really a nightmare of a situation i i don't i talked to someone else about this who was like more familiar with conservatorships in general um but my question was like how was it possible for her to not be allowed to hire her own attorney I didn't I didn't um that was like shocking to me yeah I mean like you know the documentary shows that lawyer that she tried to hire and the judge was like you don't know the medical things that I know and thus I'm I'm barring this so Yes, she had legal representation, but she wasn't able to choose who she yeah. wanted to represent her, which is troubling. Did, did you see that it was like a woman of color? She's either a lawyer or a filmmaker, and she was talking about how it turns out that that lawyer, judges have lawyers who are blacklisted that they like won't work with and they won't let them in their courtroom. And that guy, like judges found her lawyer that she heard like a pain in the ass and that was like the motivating factor for not letting him represent her i hadn't heard that oh i i don't know there's there are a lot of good um instagram accounts that are are 
if you're interested in like really the up-to-date what's happening with the conservatorship um, that cover it at like really extensively every time there's a new motion um, free Britney LA like links to all of them all the time and they're constantly updating about it so if you're interested I recommend following them um, and they really break down like they'll show the actual court documents they'll explain what it means so if you're interested in the conservatorship and those legal details, I recommend following them. I have a question. I have another question. Yeah. What if, when I'm caring about Brittany, I care about Brittany and I think it's inhumane what's been done to her. And she's literally like an animal that's just supposed to make people money. But she has, when I think about it, then I just think about third world countries and how, what they struggle with. And I've, I like, feel like I've spent a lot of time reconciling with what I want to give energy to. And I do, I want to go to a protest for Free Britney. And I want to put energy into her getting absolved of this bullshit conservatorship. And it really hurts me that a woman can have that much power taken away. And I want to work against it she's still like a billionaire and she has a lot of advantages that kids who are chained to their sewing machines in like Indonesia don't have. And sometimes I play the oppression Olympics in my head of who, like, where should I put my energy towards like liberating who, but it's also important to go where like the energy exists. So right now I, I feel like the rest of the world like motivated to free Britney. So I just use like the energy that I have inside. This sounds so icky and LAE. Like I just use my inner spiritual light, guide me to my social justice endeavors, even if they're for the liberation of a multi-billionaire lady. But <laughs> that's what it is. <laughs> well, I think that it's important to know that the free Britney movement, every, if you follow any of those accounts, they're always promoting a documentary called the guardians, which is all about conservatorship abuse. So they're not just fighting for Britney. They're fighting for that. These laws abuse a lot of people. Typically conservatorships are for um, used for elderly people who it's deemed that they can't control their finances. They ha don't have their faculties, but there are tons of abuses in that system. So it's not, just about Britney, she happens to be the most visible uh, person in this situation. It's very unique that she's so young, has this much money. Obviously there's a lot that's unique about her situation, but it, it's not just fighting for one person. There's um, this conservatorship issue is, is really massive. And so there's that. I think the second piece is a much bigger question, which is we're all only individuals and there are a lot of issues that demand our time and attention. And so that's an individual prioritization and interest and uh, passion level, you know, but I, I think it's makes, I think your point is a good one. Like sometimes things have energy, but it doesn't mean when there's not a big news story about an issue that like, we should not be caring about it. There's a, there are a lot of causes and it takes people being involved in a diverse amount of them, you know, to make some progress. It's, it's, and I, I don't think anyone can tell anyone else, like what are those issues for them that they should get involved with, you know? Oh, also separately, you're a writer. 
What yeah. Are you- <laughs> I thought I actually d- didn't think we were talking about Britney. <laughs> I thought we were not going to talk about Britney, but I'm happy to. I'm happy that it came up. Um, you're a writer. Please describe what you've been working on. <laughs> and firstly, how did you get into writing and what, what kept you going all these years? Um, how did I get into writing? I think ever since I was a kid, I've been writing. I definitely wasn't associating it with like a profession at that time. There was this very childlike love of it, which I think I'm always chasing. <laughs> Again, um, there, in the Fran Lebowitz documentary, a few, or that Martin Scorsese, um, what's it called? Um, oh my God, I forgot the name. Okay, what is it? Pretend it's the city. Pretend it's the city. I was like, living in the city? No. Uh, Sex in the city? She has this line that I thought was, it really resonated with me, which was the first, the, the time writing was, the first time writing was ruined for me is when someone offered me a paycheck for it. And that's, I felt that so deeply. Um, and I always feel like that's, that's a tension, but yeah, when I was a kid, I remember we had a typewriter and my brother and I would, um, write stories together. And as I got older, I think when it really started to click was Zanga. I had a Zanga that I wrote in every single day after school. And that's where I found this fusion of the joy of writing with, there was also a community and I would get comments on it, you know, from people in high school, it was all just high school people. Um, And, but I started to like, there was some kind of feedback loop that was really like pleasing to my brain of I would write something and know people were going to read it. And I could see what got comments, which is like the Instagram version of a heart or something (laughs) for back in the day. Um, I, I, and I started to really see like, when I write something funny, that resonates with people. And so I I was sort of like learning in real time as I went, uh, like not only just how to write by doing it consistently, but also like what's interesting to people, what what stories click. Um, But again, that was all very like informal. I wasn't consciously doing it, which is why it was so enjoyable (laughs) in so many ways. Cause now one of the things I struggle with the most is being consistent, like writing every single day, having a schedule. Um, And that was the time in my life where it came so easily to me. I didn't even think about it. And I think it's because of that like paycheck business mentality that has sort of um, (laughs) crippled some of that energy that came so easily to me once, but that energy is never gone. so when I went to college, I, I studied creative writing. I learned more of like the craft and how, you know, reading all of these books and breaking them down. I've always loved to read. And I've always on the side, like since then been writing on and off fiction stories. Um, tr- I'm trying now to write a book, which we'll see how that goes. <laughs> I'm like scared to even say it out loud, but yeah, and it's, there have been times where it's been very like feast or famine when I'm also, I write for my day job. And so, you know, I write like, I'm, I'm basically a copywriter. And so I'm always writing like ads and things for businesses, which is great because it pays my bills. But it's not like when I was a child, my dream was to write ad copy or something. So there's always like a, a tension there of I am writing for my job because I've always been interested in that, but it's not necessarily... Um, the kind of writing that I like to do. So yeah, that's my 
and that's my how I got into writing. With your you're saying that in real time you learned that comedic writing resonated with people. Um, for me, it did. I don't know, like, I don't know if that's true for everyone, but that was my experience. Do you still write comedy? I think a lot, a lot of my writing verges on that. Um, not always. A, a lot of what I've been writing about the last few years has been climate change, which is a very serious subject. And I started exploring like sci-fi and just, I was reading so many news stories that were so depressing about it. And I would just ask myself like, to what end, right? You read about all our jobs are gonna be like automated and machines are gonna take over, which isn't so much climate change, but um, you know, what, what does that mean if every job is taken over? And what does it mean if all the coasts are flooded? What does it mean if, you know, reading all these stories and just being like, what does it mean? And that for the last few years, I've started writing about because I, I think it's my way of coping with what I find very overwhelming, uh, which is climate change. Uh, to me, it's like the most um, gripping issue. It's the one for some reason that I find really hard to like move away from and just get over. And so my writing has been processing that. So those stories aren't always funny, um, but I've started writing like more sci-fi, I think, to process that. But even within that, like one of the stories that I recently finished is about a guy talking to, it's like a monologue almost of a guy talking to his therapist and he's obsessed with climate change and it's a funny monologue. Um, it's very good. <laughs> I pay him to say that. <laughs> but, um, I am in SEX. <laughs> yeah, and exactly. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's it's still very present, and and what I'm working on now is actually a fusion of of kind of the those concepts, which is like climate change is such a dire issue. Brian knows because I'll read an article and he'll be in a really good mood, and then I'll be like, "Did you know about the sea lions?" and blah, and like completely take down his day. And so, <laughs> and uh, I started um, just wondering if there's a way to have conversations about climate change that bring in humor. And so that's a lot of what this book that I'm starting is exploring. Like, is there any synergy? <laughs> is there any humor and levity that could be brought to climate change? And, and is that, does that make the issue more accessible for more people? And so that is really, you know, I, I think about any subject, like humor is such a human coping mechanism. It, it's so helpful, even the most dark and depressing issues. And I haven't really seen too much explored on that in terms of books that I've read. They're not funny, they're really depressing. So that's kind of what I'm exploring now is like is, and I don't know the answer. I might get, get like kind of far in this book and be like, this is crap and like, I can't take it any further. But my hope is that there could be some room for something like that and that it would be useful uh, to bring more people on board instead of it being like, I can't read about this because it's so, depressing like I don't even want to I can't think about this anymore I can't add this to my life you know well I think you can joke about everything Brian what were you gonna say no I was gonna say I think it's like such a good way of getting in with like learning more about climate change in a way that is is really accessible where you're just like not feeling the sense of dread every time you read it like it's it's definitely factual and 
has information that we should know. But I mean, personally, I love anything that has humor in it, like any type of humor writing, you know, TV show or movie or book, like humor is the way in for me. And I know I find it so much easier to like read and digest if I can like just find that levity in it. So like to take a subject like climate change and to be able to fuse that with a, through a comedic lens is such a, I think such like a fascinating idea that I think could be like really, really successful. And you're a great writer. So I think you would do it very well. Um, she pays me a text later. <laughs> and friendship. And friendship. <laughs> Happy Valentine's Day, everyone. <laughs> So before you were like into, um, you mentioned you were writing sci-fi and, and things like that the last couple of years. Was there like a different genre that you started off really being into that you kind of changed the direction or has it kind of been consistent throughout your whole career? I think I used to write almost exclusively about failed romantic relationships, <laughs> which was very much memoir-esque. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> but... I, I mean, even when I write about climate change and even when I write sci-fi, the thread that's consistent is human relationships. Like all of those things to me are the most interesting. They're, they're what makes life meaningful to me. And I think they're endlessly fascinating. There's always something to learn from all, all relationships, not just romantic, you know, friendships, coworkers, uh, interaction you have with a clerk, right? There are so many little dynamics to people's personalities and where they came from and how that shows up in everyday life. And so that thread has always been um, pulled me to writing, you know, but, and, and that's very present still. But when I started, it was much more set, always set in present day, always, almost always about romantic relationships. And it's, you know, what I was going through at the time and it was a way to process that. Um, so I think I've tried to I hopefully I've matured a little bit and it's not so much about like, I need to process exactly that fight that I just had with someone. And that's like, let me just give this person a different job and I'll change a few details. And like, this is fiction writing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I think it's evolved, but it's uh, again, the seeds I think are still, still the same in some ways. Nice. Yeah. It's, I think like, as a writer, you're always trying to put, you know, like the old adage is write what you know, right? Like everyone kind of starts off really trying to, how to bring in their own experiences and their own kind of sensibility into their work. And do you feel like you've, you've done that kind of throughout your career and the things that you've written? Or have you been able to get away from that a little bit and be more of like a almost like just kind of go outside of yourself a little bit and create that way? How have you found that? Yeah, uh, I think one of the most important things for writers to do is to actually attempt to put yourself in someone else's shoes. <laughs> and I think that's a step that um, in general, a lot of young writers start by writing about themselves. And I think that's very healthy and it's important. And I think equally as important is to push yourself to get out of that at a certain point. Um, so for me, a lot, a lot of what started my experimentation is I would, because I was writing so much about romantic relationships, I was really fascinated and um, my, my romantic relationships have been with men. And I was really fascinated by like what men go through because I so intimately was experiencing the woman's perspective and like all the societal shit that 
is put on women. And I was like, what are, is, what are men even going through? And so I started writing a lot of stories from the male perspective. And that was my first, like, what is their experience of this? And that is totally, you know, in my mind, I was like, this is so different than what I'm experiencing. And what you realize, of course, is like, well, there's still people, <laughs> they're still going through a lot of the same shit, but there is so much about how men are brought up and um, just all the way our society is so gendered, that is very different. Um, and so that, you know, I think was a way to step out of it. And since then, it's like, you know, there's one story I'm working on where it's from the perspective of like a 70 year old woman with cancer, you know, that's not something I've experienced personally, but I still think that every story, everything anyone is writing you, it's coming from that person. And so there's always some, some of that person in there. Like, you know, it's not like Stephen King is like a clown who's killing children, but what that some part of him that comes from some part of him. And there's some bits of him that are imprinted on his stories. And, you know, he always talks about that, like his childhood, this, the railroad tracks and his childhood, like setting of his town. There was, there's something that he always returns to about this field or this railroad track or this Creek, you know, that consumed him as a child. And so I think there are thematic things that I, I always return to um, and maybe will forever, but I try to not put myself so much in it uh, or, or make it about me unless I'm very purposely like, this is a nonfiction story. And yeah, I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, it definitely does. Tracy, now you go. Do you have anything? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just, I'm really, I'm really enjoying listening to you. It's very interesting. Um, oh, not failing. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, what like came up for me there is like, I was thinking about myself as like a young writer and all of the literature I was reading as a young person was written by men. And I found that when I attempted to write, I often wrote from a male perspective naturally. Um, and it took me quite a long time to realize that that was like, culturally programmed and I should like learn how to write about my own experiences um, and I'm wondering if you've had any if you have any comments on that yeah I I think you've framed that so beautifully and I haven't framed it that way for myself but it's so true it's like there's this unlearning and it's it's not even just books it's like all the movies we've seen all the shows we've seen everything we grew up with was from the male lens, right? And so every image we had of women was through someone else's eyes. And that, I can't even explain how that's left its like fingerprints on me. I know it's like deeper than I'll ever get to, which is really frustrating. Um, but I do think that, you know, now at least there's more awareness about that and there's you know, you still have to be really proactive. If you wanna like find women's novels, you have to actively seek a lot of them out. If you wanna have a bookshelf that's actually has black writers that has LGBTQ writers, it's not just like you go to a store and pick a random assortment and you're gonna get a, ran a beautiful diverse selection. It's like often you have to actually seek it out. But I think a lot of people are aware of that now and, and are trying to do that. Um, and, and it was, 
I, I had to purposefully do that. You know, I mean, I'm, I also minored in gender studies back in the day, which again, like I, I was in college mid 2000s to late 2000s. And so, you know, like we were talking about with mental health, now the feminism is everywhere. It's on like t-shirts and it's so like, it's become like consumerist and it's just almost like the norm in some ways that you're a feminist uh, or it's, can be taken for granted that like we just assume that that's very dominant and obviously it doesn't mean that the culture has totally changed but it was so I remember it being so freaky that I was studying gender studies like it was so strange at the time and getting so many questions about it um and you know now I don't think that would happen in the same way but so in college I remember like because I was studying writing and gender studies just reading so many different kinds of authors and like loving that. And it was, I hadn't been exposed to it, you know? And there was always in high school and we went to a pretty liberal high school, but it was still like, if we read a book by a black author or a woman author, it was like, and now we're gonna read a book by a, a white woman. Like, <laughs> ready everyone? Like this is our month of, of your one month in four years where you're gonna read a woman. Like, look how progressive we are. So it wasn't baked in, you know, even in progressive places. And yeah, it's, it's like, I can't explain how that's impacted me, but I think about it a lot now. And I really, really try to, someone told me that like, you should be able to have a full shelf in your bookshelf of just women authors. You should be able to have a full shelf that's just people of color. You should be able to have a full shelf that's LGBTQ. And I think that's a good rule of thumb of like, can you fill a shelf? And if not, like, let's you know if you are able to try to buy some some books and and fill that shelf so I, I try to do that totally yeah it's like a, it's like a constant process for me and like I I went to college during a similar time period and I think I was functioning with like a lot of internalized misogyny and like I didn't understand I didn't know gender studies I didn't know I didn't know what was going on over there and like, I didn't want to, I didn't want to look at it. And like, um, yeah, it's, 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 it's interesting how much it has shifted, like, in the like dominant cultural landscape in like a short period of time. Yeah. It's not even, I feel like it's even beyond not wanting to look at it. It's like, there's even a stage before of like, I didn't even know I could look at that. Right. You know, it's like, Th things were just the way they were and I didn't even know to question that well you know when we were reading all male authors in high school I was like okay that's books that's just what books are you know yeah. I didn't even think like wait why are these all white people why are these all men why are women written this way you know I didn't even have the tools to to question it until later and yeah yeah, it's like, I think so much about how, how, you know, and that's our generation. Like, what about our parents? What about our grandparents? And like, you go back through history and I'm just like, how many amazing creative minds have we lost out on because of the way we've oppressed people? You know, how many people, and not just creative minds, like how many people who could have cured diseases have we like shut down? How many people who could have done so many great things for the world have we just not allowed to, to use their brains. Like we forced them into situations where they couldn't. 
you know, it's like, it's a very depressing thought, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) We like depressing. (laughs) Drive off depression and aftershave. Depression and aftershave. The new novel. (laughs) (laughs) They, um, I don't know, the proverbial they, I was going somewhere and now I'm lost. Um, oh kids when they're young because not only are books written by men but a lot of times books are about boys and their perspective so most kids when they're young like before they identify verbally as anything they center themselves as boys that they think they're boys because they don't think of it oh Al's dog is playing with himself. I gotta let him know. Hold on. Is he humping it right now? What is happening? Oh my, no, leave it on. Turn off the mute button. I want everyone <laughs> to listen to this that's happening. He knows we're talking about him. He's like, I will not perform for free. Like what? Everything <laughs> in the boy's eyes? I don't understand what you mean. <laughs> oh, yeah. So everyone's kind of queer. It all comes back to that. Or if you're not queer, the only non-queer people are people who would be queer if they were queer. I'm okay. putting that on a bumper sticker. Okay. <laughs> only, only straight people, the only straight people that I trust are people that if they were gay, they would be out. What? What? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think I, that I think that people are not really truthful about their sexuality and like except for honest people and there's a lot of non-honest people so the non-honest people who say they're straight I'm like good for you I don't believe you but people who are good people who I think would live an authentic lifestyle if they say they're straight I'll be like okay you're straight I think think people are uh are not truthful it's like well why are they not truthful and it's probably like society or their family that is you know fucking that up more than like they are innately a good person or innately an honest person you know yeah i'm not saying that they're hiding their sexuality as like because they're actually gay i'm just saying i don't they're liars bad people (laughs) it's just like i don't know i don't think they have there's a lot of weird people who I don't trust in the world because I, you know, don't like people. I mean, I love people and I get along with them. I'm a people person. I yeah, because you love person. people and you hate people. So you got to be a people person. <laughs> yeah, like I'm just every, I, however, I just think when a girl tells me she's straight, she doesn't want to fuck me. I don't actually think that she's actually straight. I think she's just closing up shop and being like, no. I feel like I you're taking that way too personally. Yeah. She might actually be straight. It might not be about you. If that gives you any relief from thinking you're being rejected. <laughs> well, I think about men and I don't know why I think I'm so awesome, but I do sometimes. And I'm like, okay, now in my older years, in my middle age hood, I think that 
okay, like I'd fuck dudes. I'd fuck some dudes. But I don't feel comfortable saying that in a big group setting or like saying I'm pansexual because guys are like really not fuckworthy. Brian, you're one of the very few fuckworthy men on the internet. You? <laughs> Get out. <laughs> I feel the need to say I'm gay. Okay. Yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> I think it's fair to be afraid. Well, first of all, I don't know when you'd have to be in a room, a big room of people and like yell. <laughs> yeah, explain <laughs> what you would do. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. I, I think it's real to be like, I don't want to draw fucked up attention from men because so many of them are have are skeezy or I don't want that attention or whatever. And that's very valid. Yeah. But I don't know. I don't think you should like have to lie. Uh, I hope you don't feel like you have to lie about your identity or how you feel because of men being that way you know well I don't know I mean I don't want to just because I mean I think I'd fuck Brad Pitt and Jake Gyllenhaal so I don't really have many chances to be with the type of men I'd want anyway so there's no point in really so maybe cross the bridge you know if you when you get <laughs> yeah. to the room with Brad Pitt yeah. let me know how it goes <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I, situational like, by situation basis you know he, yeah it's like guy by guy specifically like celebrities <laughs> only celebrity men I don't need to fuck a celebrity woman because so many women are beautiful and they shower and they brush their teeth and they can wipe their own ass and if they got lost in a area they would be able to use gps and get out they wouldn't just be like I need a strong arm this without my google maps because I'm a man I'm just you know well, just I riffing, just riffing on men. Yeah, just <laughs> I, Brian and I talk a lot though about how, like, yes, we live in a misogynistic patriarchal society. It's like really fucked women. No woman I know has like come out unscathed <laughs> from this world. But like, America's really fucks with men too, and like, men go through a lot of shit, and they, in many ways, have less avenues for help because they're not allowed to access their emotions in the same way women are. So like, whereas I don't think, and this is broad strokes, you know, everyone's different and there are communities that this is very different in, but broadly it's like, okay to express your emotions and it's okay to say, I need help and it's okay to go find that. Whereas generally for men, it's like a totally different experience to say, I need help. And that's a, a really sad state of affairs. And this is a cycle that obviously impacts everyone. If men can't like, can't feel free from this box of like, you have two emotions, which are anger or like sexual arousal or something, then like, what is that? And violence, you know, it's like, what, what is that producing? Like what? And, and so I just think that like, I, I just really feel for men and like what we need to help them. Like they, yes, like women's rights, a thousand percent, like women need a, a lot of attention and help and they're still really oppressed in this society. And I'm all for that. But I also think that men and obviously trans people, which is a whole other issue, but like women aren't the only ones who need help, right? This, the society is like really fucking everyone in different ways. 
and those ways deserve attention and those people deserve attention. Yeah, well, I think men have it pretty bad, I'd have to say. <laughs> yeah, it's so, it's so sad. That's why the suicide rate is so high among yeah. men. It's horrible. Yeah. It's there's horrible. a there's a really good Instagram called All um, All Men Cry, and it's like this uh, this guy who just interviews um, guys who talk about like uh, who have gone through like mental health issues and kind of share their experiences on um, masculinity and how you know every every story differs, but that's kind of like the general theme. It's really good if uh, if you want to check it out. What's yeah. that called again? Uh, All Men Cry. I feel like I just have to get over it like I at this point don't even have guys in my life that I can't assert myself in front of and I'm in a good place with men like my dad is a feminist my brother's a feminist Brian's a feminist and that's about all the men I see so <laughs> um so I don't really struggle like I feel like men today I'm able to I've luckily been around a lot of feminists and able to deal with all the masculinity in my life today. I think I just have like a chip on my shoulder about being like, like how habitually I'll say something and then people are like, oh, we don't understand you. But then a man will mansplain what I said. And then everyone in the room was like, oh yeah, we get what you're saying. and. I feel like I have so many instances where, but it's all like in the past. And I feel like I have a lot of narratives that I could benefit from moving on from. Yeah, I think there's this like, okay, who do you choose to have in your life? And that's a really powerful, important tool. And then there's also like, who do you have to interact with, right? Which usually comes into play at work, <laughs> which is like, that's where a lot of that stuff comes up for me, which is like people that I, I have to collaborate with, or I have to get along with to get paid basically. <laughs> and that's like, those things can still arise and you have to navigate them in a way where it's like, if we were at a bar, I would just walk away and never see you again. But, <laughs> No, I have to work on this multi-million dollar project with you <laughs> for like eight months, so. <laughs> oh, final, we'll wrap this up in a, in a little bit. How does collaboration impact your creative writing or your artistic endeavors? Um, well, writing is like a really solitary act, which is one of the things that's hard about it. For, for me as a fiction writer, I know that's different if you're like in a writer's room or something. And, but that being said, like what I write about is human relationships. And so my social life is like deeply important to me as a human being, but also as a source of creativity. And for me, the collaborative process comes in, like with Brian, you know, we'll be eating dinner and I'm like, I have this idea or here's the, how the story is going. And I'm like workshopping it in real time with him or, um, in the editing process, like I've taken a lot of writing classes and they're all generally the same and that it's all about, and, and what, what I get out of writing classes is a deadline. And for some reason, some psychological horrible reason when I have an authority figure, give me a deadline. I'm like, yep, I'll meet it. <laughs> if it's just me being like, I wanna write this by Thursday. I'm like, whatever, who cares? It's just me, <laughs> but um, for classes, I get a deadline and then I get a group of people who are 
what sorry, are you doing? Sorry. <laughs> and then I get a group of people who are um, forced <laughs> to read my own writing and respond to it within a certain deadline, which is really hard, right? Like getting feedback from people as you're developing a story, as you're in the editing process, like that has been really, really helpful for me. I find it really hard for me to share my writing and progress with like friends and other people because one, there's an element of like, they don't know the creative process or they're gonna judge me or something and think this is final and it's not final uh, and all the qualifying stuff you wanna say before you share something. But <laughs> more than that, it's also like, it's a big time commitment to read fiction in a way if I like, I don't know, if I'm like, hey, look at my painting. You could look at that for 10 seconds and tell me what you think, right? Whereas, hey, I wrote a 40 page story can you give me notes? It's like, it's just a different kind of daunting ask. And a lot of people um, don't want to put in that. Or I always feel like I'm, I'm asked, I would be asking a lot if I was regularly asking my network of friends and family to be collaborating with me on my writing. And so the collaboration comes in through classes and like writing communities. But for me, it's, it's largely solitary. Um, and that's part of what makes it hard. It's also when it's, when it, you do it right, it's like such a great in personal high. It's like such a self-confidence, such a like, this came from me, I made this thing, like I'm proud of it. Um, and it's not like I'm the only, like this genius in the world who did it alone. Like all of these elements of my life and all these people I talked to help make it happen. But there is some sense of like, I, I did this, you know, like I, I set my mind to something and achieved something and I can feel proud of that as an individual, which is important for like mental health and, and self-care. So yeah, it's a, it's collaboration is a weird one, but it's important. Oh, um, does anyone have any final questions? Um, I just want to say that like, yeah, I really relate to the not wanting to show friends writing. <laughs> in progress it seems like mortifying and like like you cannot it's it's like such a it's like the ego on both ends of the spectrum it's like you cannot possibly understand the process that's going on right here and like i need like um you, you might not see the potential that's here but i assure you it's, it's here it's there it's here <laughs> So and I just need you to to validate that. Otherwise, uh, I'm not interested in sharing right now. Otherwise, I'll crumble. So yeah. I'll <laughs> yeah. I definitely have the same thing. I yeah. never. Well, that's honestly like one reason I love Brian and that like our relationship is really nice among many others is that I feel like I can share everything I'm working on with Brian and he's really like a safe place to share that with and workshop it and I feel supported in a way that like is way too scary to do with other people um who I'm close with for those reasons of I'm just like you don't get it you won't get it if you don't like this I don't know like you don't know the nuances you don't know the artistic process <laughs> you don't see the thematic through lines yeah <laughs> did you didn't did you see the central motif though and how I repeated uh, this one image <laughs> it's an allegory <laughs> <laughs> that was so amazing that little banter 
Thank you so much for coming on, Rachel. Thanks for chatting with me. Uh, it was really nice to be on your show. I appreciate it. Yeah, uh, final thoughts are that Rachel once started a book called The Joys of Being, and um, Rachel sent it to me, and I will send it to you and Brian, and it's chronicles of me being uh, really intoxicated and knowing Rachel, and it's a small, it's, it, it's like really well written. And every time I want to find the story to copy, gun, and paste to send back to Rachel, because I'm like, remember when you wrote this? And you're like, <laughs> you said we should write this book. And I was, and you were like really adamant about writing a book about your like misadventures. And so I wrote down like three stories of things that had recently happened and they were all ridiculous. But the book should never be published. It should be. <laughs> It's really well written and I'm excited to dig it up for the 80th time. Like every few years, I'm like, Rachel, remember this? And you're like, how can I forget? You send me, you like copy, cut and paste the like Facebook message every few years to remind you. And I'm going to, and it's all. <laughs> you wrote it all on Facebook? You, you I, yeah, like pasted it into I think the I wrote it somewhere else and then send it to mm. Karen. Yeah, so I have to find it. And that's a lot of, it's years of scrolling. This is from 2007. Wow. Yeah. This is like the, the secret Britney album. Like it needs to be <laughs> released into the world. The world so needs we can all experience it. Mm. Really well yeah, we written. To choose, I picked the Britney album. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not the star of Britney's album, but I am the star of this book. So I obviously vote for this book to be released. <laughs> We'll keep talking about that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We love you. Love. Oh, we love you. What are you doing for Valentine's Day? Well, Nothing. it's COVID. So we're going to stare at each other's faces like we've done for hundreds of days. <laughs> um, we're going to go on a walk with our dog and eat a nice dinner, hopefully. And I don't know, maybe watch a movie, which yeah. is also what we do a lot. <laughs> Okay, well, sounds like a fantastic Valentine's Day. Tracy and I are Valentines. You don't know yet, Tracy, but <laughs> you know, you know. <laughs> All righty, love you. Bye. Bye.